Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. When we were now three years old as a church, I missed it last week, very sadly, but uh, it was about four or five years ago that Toria, um, Toria spoke to me, the Lord spoke to us about what now is Trinity Church London. And one of the part and parcel of us being part of the team that would start this church was moving closer to central London. For us at the time, it was, it was an impossibility. And if I haven't bored you about the story how we managed to move to, to London, move to Fulham, um, one day I will bore you with the miracles that God did to allow us to part by this house and to establish what is now Trinity Church London and the future that is ahead of us. One of the things that were amazing was one of the people who invested with us in this property is that they invested slightly extra so we could renovate the back of the house and so we could make it bigger to have the likes of you people coming into our house and do worship and prayer and training, all the stuff we want to do as community. And so we started this um, project, which was exciting and nerve-wracking because we've never done anything like this in the past, of like talking to architects and things like this and like what do you do and building firms, etc., etc. Um, we sat down with an architect and we started designing what would be the back of the house. We wanted to, as big as possible. That's basically like as many as people possible want to fit in the back of our house. So we put these architect plans together and then as I now learn you have to do construction drawings after that so the builders know what to do. And uh, we started builders on site which was nerve wracking in and of itself. Because all these people, a lot of them didn't speak English, and they sounded very angry a lot of the time. We're just like <laughs> destroying the back of our house, just hoping that it's kind of like, I guess they know what they're doing. Um, we, and they had, well, they had the, you know, the blueprints to our, our kind of the, the back of the house rolled up there, and the builders every now look at it. And it took, one day I, I walked into the back of the house, and it was just like devastation, building sites, and they were starting to raise the wall and build the wall up, and they got to about hip height. And as soon as I walked out, I realised something had gone wrong. Because the idea was that the doors at the back of the house, they were supposed to be like in the middle of the house. That's normally how you'd expect the doors, you know, like a bit of symmetry, that makes sense. French doors out in the middle of the house. Except they were building the walls up so that the French doors were to the side of the house. And I had this horrible moment of having to speak to these four or five builders to try and ask them to stop because I wasn't sure what they were doing was right. So I called the boss up and said, you need to come down now. I think they and sure enough, what happened is they had the blueprints, right? They were, they were lying there, but they had decided to go solo and decided that the way to cut the bricks and not cut the bricks meant that actually they would leave the doors to the side of the house, not in the center of the house. And uh, we had this awkward 15 minutes where they tried to persuade us that this kind of looked okay. And Tora and I are thinking like, no, that looks ridiculous. Um, and trying to pluck up the courage to ask them because they didn't want to like restart these walls and start again. Anyway, thankfully, they repented. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they rebuilt the walls as they should have done according to the blueprints. If they'd gone with the blueprints, it would have been centered and straight. They freestyled and it ended up being off center and wonky. And I want to suggest to us that if we don't go back to the blueprints for life itself, we will end up leaving, leading lives that are slightly off-center and wonky. And if enough of us do that at the same time, we end up with a kind of societal chaos that we are finding ourselves in right now. We need the maker's blueprints 
if we are going to live well and build straight. Amen? Will Herberg, who was a writer in the 1900s, he wrote this, and he coined the phrase, cut flower culture. He says this, the attempt made in recent decades by secularist thinkers to disengage the moral principles of Western civilization from their scripturally based religious context has resulted in our cut flower culture. So it says, cut flowers retain their original beauty and fragrance, but for as only as long as they retain the vitality that they have drawn from their now severed roots. And after that is exhausted, they wither and die. So with freedom and brotherhood and justice and personal dignity, the values that form the moral foundation of our civilization, without the life-giving power of the faith out of which they have sprung, they possess neither meaning nor vitality. He makes this point that the, today's culture and all that we are living with and what we are fighting for in terms of personal dignity and justice actually arise from a Judeo-Christian heritage that they arise from the Bible, that is not a secularist foundation where you find the culture that we have been living with and the good of in this Western civilization. And yet what we are trying to do now, he said, is cut ourselves off from this foundation and still live with the good of the fruits of a Judeo-Christian heritage. And things around us are beginning, most of us, whether we're Christian or not, would agree, we're not doing so well at society at the moment. He says, we need to go back to this soil of the Bible. And what this teaching series in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is all about is taking us back to the blueprints of our maker. To go back to what the design of our maker said, how did you design the world to be? How did you design life to be built? How did you design things to work, relationships, society? And let us follow that. Because even as Christians, we're always in danger of living Christian to-dos and don't-dos without actually the foundational blueprints that make up the fabric of, of life. As Christian parents, and I'm a parent of two children now, I'm so aware that I could just pass on Christian behaviours without the actual blueprint for life. God and the scriptures and the gospel and the deep roots that they need in the soil of the Bible if they're going to withstand in their generation. I can't just pass them a cut flower version of it, just this is what Christianity looks like. No, what did God say about your life? And you work it out in your generation. So in this series, these first few chapters, the first foundational chapters in the Bible, we're going to be looking at issues like how do we deal with the physical, the, the physical stuff of this world? How do we rest well? Is God interested in your work? You ever wondered that on a Monday afternoon? Another email, you think, is this even relevant to eternal life? You ever wondered that question? A few people, yes. <laughs> We're going to look at the nuclear family and why it's important to God. We're going to look at marriage. Why is marriage foundational to building a society? We're going to look at why is friendship so hard to come by and to keep? If you're married in the house, don't, not too much, but why is marriage sometimes so hard. We're going to ask and answer these questions and we're going to ask what is the end of all things from Genesis 1, 2 and 3. We're going to look at the blueprint of how God intends us to live, if that sounds okay. Mm. All right, got a couple of amens in the house. Here's, before we get into it, we're going to do a little introduction and I want to talk about Genesis 1. How should we read Genesis? A couple of quick thoughts. The first is this. Who wrote Genesis? 
The Old Testament and the New Testament and Jesus tell us that Moses wrote these words. And sometimes outside of church, this is debated. How could it be? This is my standpoint. I think Moses wrote these words because Jesus taught that Moses wrote these words. <laughs> and if you're going to hedge your bets, you should hedge your bets with the guy who was crucified was dead and of his own volition got up from the dead to never die again and go to the Father. If he thinks that Moses wrote these words, I'm going with Jesus. So we're going to talk about Moses. So if you think, why Moses? Because Moses wrote these, these words. And this, when we come to read the Bible, with any Bible, the Bible, especially in Genesis, we've got to just keep the thing in mind. The first thing is this. There is a big time gap between us and when Moses wrote these words. So like 3,000 plus years. And so the questions that Moses had in his mind when he was writing this are different to the kind of questions that we have in our minds. Like we come with a scientific era with all the technology and science behind us. Moses was coming with a completely different set of questions and concerns about idolatry and divinity and who is the true living God. So I have to say, some of us are going to be slightly disappointed that your questions aren't answered through this teaching series. Because what we want to try and do is take Moses on his own terms and try and find out what were the questions that Moses was trying to deal with and they may not necessarily be the same questions that we come to. So we may not get into some of the deep, dark controversies over how old the earth is, etc., etc., because we want to read Moses on his own terms as a man who was living three and a half thousand plus years ago. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. In any piece of scripture, you've got to take the genre into account. And so particularly in Genesis 1, what we have, Hebrew scholars will tell us, is basically a poem. It's this song about how creation came to be, how the stuff of this world, when we look around, how did all of this come to be? So we've got to be careful that we don't come to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, these blueprints, like it's a scientific textbook when you're doing GCSE science. Moses is writing poetry in Genesis 1. He was writing true truths about God and creation, but it's not a scientific textbook. Science that we have today is a true and beautiful and Christian ambition to find out and explore all how God created and made the world, how does it work. But all of science submits ultimately to the true truth of Genesis 1 and the poetry therein and what it tells us about God, our maker. We can't map directly science onto Genesis 1, 2 and 3 because Moses wasn't dealing in our modern day science. It doesn't mean that science is not Christian and there is no actual conflict. Faith and science are actually beautifully complementary. Complementarity. No, what's the word? Complementary. Complementary. Thank you, brother. <laughs> but we've got to come to the text in its own time. That takes me to the third point. When we're reading Moses, as with any part of scripture, the goal of what we're about is finding out what did Moses mean to write when he wrote these words? Not do I want to hear, but what did Moses want to communicate? The goal of reading any literature, if we're reading it properly and truly, is to find out what did the author mean to say? If you get an email from your boss and you're a bit confused, you don't tend to go away and think, well, actually, I'm going to hedge my bets and I think he probably means X and I'm just going to do this. What do you do if you're uncertain? If you're, what's my boss? You give him a call and you say, could you explain what do you mean by this? Just to be sure. 
If I'm talking to my son, Micah, you've probably seen running around here, you know, because we're such good parents. Um, if I tell him, you know, Micah, you have to turn the PlayStation off now. Uh, it's time to... And, and he says, well, dear father, because that's how he always addresses me. <laughs> dear father, um, thank you for your words, but ours is a different generation. And as I hear your words, I interpret them as a seven-year-old. And for my generation, what I am actually hearing is you may carry on playing the PlayStation. I'm deeply grateful for all the postmodern thinkers of the last generation who have helped me see that actually I can interpret your words in the way that I desire. I think what you're saying is actually I'm going to carry on playing Jurassic Park. Thanks. Like, we know that's totally bizarre. But how many times do we take the Bible and we think, I think what this means for my life is actually X, Y, and Z, and I'd like to carry on doing this. Without ever asking, what did Moses actually intend? What did Jesus actually intend? Let me go to the author and find out, because then, if this is a life-giving book, then I will find life and breath and meaning for my life. Amen. So we are going to dive as best as we can into the culture and the era and the age of Moses' life so that we can hear Moses on his own terms and get some ancient wisdom for today's living. Amen? Amen. So the first thing is this, and this might sound like a simple start. Like what, what was Moses' like top level? What's he trying to communicate? It's not actually really about like, the when, which is disappointing for some. It's actually about the who. Verse 1 of the Bible, Moses writes, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Everything. From top to bottom, God did it all. He created everything that we now see. Everything that is spiritual and physical around us, God Created 29 times in this one chapter, God is the subject, and God creates, God speaks, God sees, God blesses, God separates, God sets, God tells us that this is good. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Out of his freedom, out of purpose, not under duress, he creates everything that we have out of his good pleasure. This is contrary to some of the myths that Moses was living with, where people were coming to the sun and assuming this beaming fireball in the sky, this is the Lord, and we bow down and worship this sun. Moses writes, no, there is a God who created the sun. The sun is just a created being that serves a higher purpose. There were other ancient myths that were going around, and still today, that basically we are the kind of collateral damage of ancient gods' wars. That basically there were gods in the skies who were fighting, who were violent, who were at, one, at, at war with one another. And basically the collateral damage of that is creation and you and me. And we just happen to find ourselves, by chance, the kind of byproduct of God's battles. And if that is the case, if you believe that kind of thing, well, you are going to live a doggy dog kind of violent, chaotic kind of life. If that's, if that's the foundations of how we... Or... We take today's kind of secularist idea that there is a, a, a physical moment through chance, or maybe it was always inevitable, we're not going to debate it today, but there is a chance moment where this 
Big Bang happened and we are evolving into what we are today, if that's how we think that has implications for how we live, because there is no higher being over us, there is no divinity that we have to bow down to, oh, we are the own arbiters of our own morality, you can't tell me what is wrong or right, because I have decided in my own heart, because there's no one above you and me that we both have to bow to, there is no, and if the physical matter is all there is, then live and let live. Eat, drink, die, be merry, whatever it may be, whatever is your pleasure, we just go for it. The material world is all there is. And through all of this, Moses says, no, the Lord, he created the heavens and the earth. Freely, purposefully, and with meaning. What we're gonna look at today is the fact that this world is good. The stuff around us is good, and it's also not enough. It's good, and it's not enough. Firstly, the world that we have around us is good. Like, sometimes if you want to be spiritual, there can be this idea that you kind of have to leave the physical world behind you. Like, the physical life gets in the way of being spiritual. But what we find out here is that God, without any obligation on himself, created freely physical stuff. Just think about it for a moment, all the pleasures of being in this physical world. Just like, like some of the things you most like doing, like getting into crisp, clean bedsheets at night. So I don't, know, I don't know why bedsheets have come up a lot recently, but, or like grass, like under bare feet, you know that feeling? And you're just like walking in the park with bare feet and that feeling. Or like jumping in the sea and that like icy cold crispy feeling that wakes you up. I think he's the same guy, that's not the pleasure that God gave. <laughs> what about fried chicken? Eating fried chicken. What about spaghetti bolognese? Fresh coffee. What about wine with friends, like proper nice Molbeck, like on an evening. Now we're talking, amen. <laughs> what about, you know when you find a, like some clothes or like a shirt or something, they just fits like nice. You know that feeling like, hey, this, this, there's that like pleasure of like this fits me. There's so many pleasures that we take for granted sometimes. And Moses says that God created all of these pleasures for us. It's good. Yeah. Everything we have around us is good. Sometimes I think we miss the emotions of the Bible. Yeah. We can analyse it so much that we analyse out the actual heart and the passion and the emotions of what is being communicated. And what we know from the Hebrew scholars is that what Moses is writing here is poetry. And you don't write poetry to be analytic, you write poetry to get emotion across. Because yeah. I could tell you words, but if you sing words, you know that you will communicate something deeper and grander. And So the question is, what emotions is Moses trying to convey by writing poetry and not just analytic writing? What is the feeling that he's trying to get across? And when you read the passage, what we find is this deep, joy-giving pleasure from God. I think the emotion that we read here is this, just the smiles of God as he creates the heavens and the earth. Because every day, seven times over, we're told God sees, and he says, this is good. 
He says, verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called, um, sorry, and God saw, sorry, that the light was good. Verse 10, he says again, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. It says, verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. Seven times over. And this is not like a teacher trying to tell the class to do different things, like tidy that up, make that, could you draw that? And it's like, good, yeah, tick, good, tick, thumb, good. No, this is God expressing his pleasure in what he himself is making. This is his happy heart coming through, saying, I, I could do anything I like. Imagine that, you could create anything you like. And this is how God chooses to spend his energetic, creative powers. And he says, I love this, this is good. And he crowns the whole thing as Tom Ray with this final word. No, as I see the totality with you, male and female in the center of this, I see now this is very good. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Narnia books, he was reflecting on this. And he wrote, in the book that's not normally read, The Magician's Nephew, like the first one, we normally start with The Lion, the Witch and the Dwarf. There's one before that that's actually pretty good. And he's reflecting, if you've never read it, Aslan is portrayed as this Jesus figure, and he, he is in this process of creating. And as C.S. Lewis reflects on this chapter, he actually writes Aslan as not speaking creation into being, but amen, singing it into being. So he writes this. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. It seemed to come from all directions at once. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. And there were no words. There was hardly even a tune, but it was beyond comparison. The most beautiful noise he had ever heard. It was so beautiful that Diggory could hardly bear it. With each step, the singing lion took its large paws and trees and mountains and animals and rivers and flowers and all sorts of lovely things were then bursting forth into existence until finally all was created. Narnia had been created by the voice of the lion. And why not? Why do we assume that God speaks this? What made you a birth? What do you do when you're happy? Like if you had a particularly happy night and you're going home or things have just gone well, you've got some good news, you start like, you might start humming to yourself. You start singing. If you're happy, we sing. What if God was so happy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there was this eternal song and out of his song burst forth creation and we are the product of a happy God. You only have to look at the creatures around us and some of the plants and the mountains and, and you think, like, was this created by a grumpy God or by a happy God? Mine, I'm going with happy. You look at a giraffe and you think, like, that's not the creation of someone who's under duress. <laughs> that's the product of someone who's got time and abilities on his hands. Like, that's someone who was, like, knocked through a couple of variations of creature and is still happy to keep going. Created out of song. Seven is an important like, number in the Bible. It speaks of completion and perfection and totality. And what we sometimes don't get in our English translations is what Moses was doing in writing this text because he uses the number seven a lot. So the first verse we have actually is encapsulated in 
seven words. That's not chant, because the second verse is encapsulated in two sentences of seven words. And when Moses talks about the seventh day, which again, seventh day is not a coincidence, he writes seven, three statements that each, you guess what, contain seven words. Because Moses is communicating the completed, perfected state of the world, that God is not looking back thinking, another day, do you know what, I could do better. No, he's saying, I have made the heavens and the earth and my heart is full and I see perfect completion. That the world around us is good. And so when the Lord comes and he enters into our existence, he doesn't come as a spirit being because this world is good. He comes as a man and he eats with us and he sleeps with us and he goes to the loo and he has to do all the things that we do because he thinks that the stuff of this world is good. He comes and he is crucified in his body so that he might take our sin and brokenness on himself and he is resurrected from the dead in his well, physical body. You might think Christ Jesus like, well, this would be the moment, you know, I could duck out of the whole physical thing. I'll get resurrected to a spirit being and then go to the Father. But he is resurrected in his body. And so that right now, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is there. We don't know how tall he was, like four foot. They were shorter in those days, apparently. Five foot, maybe six foot. We don't know. But Jesus is in his physical body in the heavenly realms right now. He has taken our physical matter, our humanity, into the heavens to be with the right hand of the Father, where he sits right now. Why? Because this stuff is good. This has implications for our spirituality, because our physical life is not the enemy of our spiritual life. Amen? The stuff around us is not getting in the way. There is so much in our current culture that, that, that is basically saying that if you want to be spiritual, you need to somehow downplay the physical. But actually Jesus does completely the opposite. He invites us into the physical realm. When he invites us to take the bread and the wine, what is he, he says, come and eat, come and drink, come and into the physical realm so that you might know me. He beckons us into all that is good and displayed around us. And we have to understand that we should not be guilty, and it has its place we're going to find out, about the physical realm. If only I could shed this note, this is how we are to be spiritual in Jesus' name. Amen? That's the first thing, that the world that we have around us is good. But the second thing is this. The world is not enough. That actually the physical realm around us, spaghetti bolognese, hard to believe as it is, it's not actually the goal of all things. <laughs> there is a higher goal beyond this world. There is a higher calling to us that this physical world speaks to, but it cannot terminate on. And the goal of all things that we have in this is God. God comes up, as I said, 29 times in this chapter. And the blueprint of this chapter is not God saying, okay, I'm going to create you a universe, the heavens and the earth. I'm going to set you in it. It's going to be glorious and beautiful and colourful and you're going to enjoy it. There are going to be so many good gifts and I'm just going to set you on your way and you can enjoy it. I'm going to go do something else for an eternity. Now what we know from the Bible is that God sets us within this framework so that we can know the maker 
who actually made us. That our final destination is not this world, but in relationship with the God who made this world. God is the divine creative who sets us in this like 4D living, breathing, talking, multicolored art installation that declares the beauty about who he is. I don't know much about art, I'm now married to an artist so I'm learning my way and I've been to a few exhibitions but I know that part of art is an expression of the artist, that there is a sense in which I, the artist is looking to express themselves through their artwork. And what we do as we walk from this place and we look up at the sky and we see the trees and we eat our lunch, what we are doing is that we are uh, having communicated to us the nature and the glory of the artist behind everything. We walk around in this grand and glorious heavens and earth art installation and we are to wonder at the God who made everything. Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handwork. Day to day they pour forth speech and night to night they reveal knowledge. Every time we step outside we are being preached to of the glory and the beauty and the nature of our maker. Amen. God is the goal of the world. The world is not the goal of the world. And the Lord has set us in this environment so that we could be taken to him. John Calvin expressed the world that we have around us like the theatre of the glory of God. And so when we read Genesis 1, what we're reading is the construction of the fabric and the characters that make up this theatre and this play. So that when we walk around, we are not just seeing physical realities, we are in the middle of a theatre and the play is the glory of God. That we are to see him in all things. That we are to behold him, to be reminded of him, to have our soul communicated to by the physical world that we have around him. Brothers Grimm wrote the, 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 the story, the fable, Hansel and Gretel. You know the story and you know it's an imperfect parable but they, they took the breadcrumbs hoping that it would lead them home. Basically, God has set many, many breadcrumbs around us so that our souls could be led home to God. So that when we do eat spaghetti bolognese, we don't just stop and say, this is amazing. We say, this is amazing. And I thank the Lord who would create such flavours. And my heart will go through the spaghetti bolognese. And my eyes would be lifted at the dinner table. And I would look to the heavens and thank the Lord and commune with him who would make spaghetti like this and mince like this and tomato like this. And when it all comes together, why is it so good? Only because God is glorious. Amen. Amen. We're going to close in a moment. Just a moment. By, by singing How Great Thou Art, one of my favourite hymns. But the, the hymn writer gets it right. He says, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all thy hands have made. I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe display. What does he say? Like, I'm just amazed. And I'm going to get on with my life. No. He says, then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art. That I look around at the world and I say, Lord, you are amazing. You are glorious. 
and I worship you. So my passion for us as a church is that we enjoy all the goodness that God has given to us, all the gifts around us in this physical life. But we don't stop there. We go all the way to their intended end so that we might be fully passionate about the God who made everything, who created, who speaks, who set, who separates, who blesses everything that we have set before us. So that when we get dressed in the morning, we're reminded of the clothes of righteousness that we have actually in Jesus Christ. I'm just getting dressed. I'm communing with God. That when we sit down and eat breakfast, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus said, he's the living bread. And that my soul can't live without Jesus. And when I do drink coffee in the morning, and hopefully some water to balance out the caffeine, I'm reminded that Jesus says, I am the living water. And without communion with God, my soul is going to thirst. When I go and get my eyes tested, I'm reminded of the fact that actually the Lord sees everything, and not just the external, he sees my heart. He knows all things. When I'm sitting with a friend and I see their face, I'm reminded of the image of God who made them, and the Lord who came down to commune with us in flesh, in Jesus Christ. When I see the sun setting, I don't just think that's a beautiful son. I'm reminded of the Lord Jesus who goes before me to the right hand of the Father again and again and again. When it rains, I'm reminded of the fact that the Lord rains down salvation and blessing on the righteous and on the unrighteous. That he is kind beyond measure. When I do go swimming in the ocean, which isn't very often, I think to myself, I'm in just one drop of this ocean, and there are depths and fathoms that I cannot understand. How deep and how vast must God be to create an ocean like this? I look at pictures of like the Hubble telescope and into galaxies and galaxies beyond galaxies, and a seemingly unnecessary expanse in the skies, and I think, how vast and how glorious must God be to create so much unnecessary size in the universe. I lift my eyes up to the skies and I think, Lord, who are you if this is the universe that you've made that sits in the palm of your hand? I look at the mountains and I see them and I think, if this is just a mountain that you have made with your word, how strong is your presence if I'm to put my feet on you, the true living rock. I look at animals like sheep and I should be reminded of the fact that I am like that animal. I am not as smart and as lion-like as I like to think I am. I am like a sheep and I'm reminded that I need a shepherd and actually the Lord says that he comes to me and he says, I am your good shepherd. Everywhere we look as a church, we want to be infused with the knowledge of the glory of this God of Genesis 1. Amen? Amen? And as we see each other finally, and we look in each other's face, we need to be reminded of the image of God who actually did come in Jesus. And that God came and communed with us 
so that he would be known by us, so that you don't have to go off to funny places to be spiritual. You can know him right now. And that he died with your sin, and that he rose in bodily form for your good and for your forgiveness and for your eternal life. And you can know him right now. So if you're not a Christian here, we're going to worship the bank and come back up. And you may not be sure if you actually are in relationship with Jesus. All you have to do, because Jesus came to us, to this world, is turn to him. And say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to give you my wrong and my sin. I want to receive your eternal life. Would you come and help me? For some of us, we need our eyes to be opened to the splendor of our God. That you have actually terminated your emotions on the physical world and not allowed the world to point you all the way to Jesus Christ. I'm just going to ask the Lord to open our eyes that we might walk around with a fresh wonder. And because of that wonder, our souls will be filled with God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together as I pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Elohim, the divine being, the creator God, the sustainer of all things through the power of your word, Jesus Christ, now incarnate, crucified, resurrected, ascended on high 2,000 years ago, back to the right hand of your Father. We come to you, God, as your creatures, walking, living in this wonderful installation that you have made for us to enjoy. Edible, tasteable, seeable, touchable, hearable. All of our senses, Lord, switched on so that we might know your glory. And Father, we pray, would you, would you fill us, Lord, with a biblical understanding of the stuff of this world, we pray. May we walk like Christians in this city. May we enjoy the stuff of this world like Christians. May we enjoy the maker of this world like Christians. Like the blueprints tell us to. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship and fill our lungs that the Lord made for us. For this very purpose, to worship.